So before we talk about the state, what's the state, first of all? Are we talking about Louisiana? No. What are we talking about? The civil government, right. Let's pray before we talk about the civil government. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this institution that you've given to us that is the civil government. I'm so thankful that you use the civil government, uh, even though our own is pretty corrupt today, to still uh, do justice and righteousness in the world. Father, help us to learn more about civil government so that we can better honor you uh, through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So the best place to begin the study of the Christian view of the civil government is is, uh, Romans. That's the best place to go. And so the first principle that Paul laid down was that it's not the responsibility of the individual citizen to take vengeance on another. That's pretty basic stuff, right? Like if someone uh, unjustly kills your dog and you know who did it, you actually saw them do it, you know, pow, like that. Do you have the responsibility then to, or the authority to take their life because they shot your dog? Yes. (laughs) Unlikely, no. You do not. You don't have any of that. Right. So it's not the responsibility of the individual citizen to take justice into their own hands. And so Romans twelve nineteen says it like this. He says, Beloved, church folks, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, does this mean that all judgment is going to wait until the final day of judgment? No. No, there's a way for justice to be done right now in time and in history and the institution that God has chosen to do that in is the civil government. And that's where we go into Romans 13. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, this statement helps us to consider the functions of the civil government. Like, what's it for? Where did it come from? You know, Paul spoke of, in 13.1, he says, governing authorities. Authorities is plural, right? So, right? Yeah, it's authorities. So he spoke of these powers in the plural. And these powers are the lawful authorities over us. So the word's plural, so that must mean that there are multiple lawful authorities over us. So it's not just the civil government alone that we are to submit to. Uh, I don't even believe Paul was talking about the Roman state, the Roman civil government, who was the high ruler in the civil sphere at that time. No, he was talking about all the different kinds of authority that are over each man. Uh, Because there's no single human authority that can claim the final sovereignty over a man's life. Uh, There's no absolute and final court of appeal in time and on earth. Is the state the highest authority on earth? Mm -mm. No. Uh, Is the church the highest authority on earth? No. No. Is the family the highest authority on earth? Who or what is? God. God. Ultimately, God. Right. And so I think that's why Paul says, submit yourself to the governing authorities. He's pretty much disputing the claim that there is one singular Uh, ultimate authority on earth uh, other than God himself. Um, So there are a multitude of authorities that have to be respected as each one gets their authorities from God. Uh, 
So men are not supposed to resist and to rebel against higher authorities. If we do that, Romans 13.2 says that we'll incur judgment. And this is really strong language. So Paul laid down a fundamental principle of Christian social thought here. And it's this. Revolution against all constituted authority, meaning the powers of the government. If you try to put on a revolution against all the uh, governing powers and authority, which includes, not exclusively, the civil government, you're rebelling against God. Should Christians ever have a spirit of revolution? No. What should be our spirit instead if, if, there, if there's unjust, if the, if the authorities are governing unjustly? What should be our mindset instead of revolution? Reformation. Reformation, that's right. Reformation. There's a difference between the two. So the third verse of Romans 13 is the transition from authorities in general to the civil government in particular. So he had this broad look at all governing authorities in Romans 13, and then he uh, kind of uh, zooms in on the civil government in particular, starting in verse 3. It says, For rulers, civil government, civil rulers, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So here we see the function of the state. So we, if we do what is good, we will get approved by the civil government. If we are uh, a terror to good conduct, we should fear, right? So we can see very simply what God's purpose of civil government is on earth. What would be some examples of civil government here on earth, like in our neck of the woods? Um, the, sh- the cops. The cops, police, yeah. They're the executors of that, of the civil government, right? Well, that's a law. That's not really an authority. Um, the governor? The governor. That's an easy one, right? Gover- government, governor. Your parents. Huh? Your parents. Well, that's not in the, they're not a part of the civil government rule, rule in your life. They're in the family, yeah. But that is a government. Who else? President. A president, sure. Way up there, yeah. Teacher. Uh, well, no, teachers aren't really a part of the civil government. Oh, never mind. Give me civil government authorities. Public school teachers. <laughs> no, not exactly. <laughs> they are the priests of the civil government, unfortunately. But no, they don't. They don't have any authority. They don't. They can't bear. They don't bear the power of the sword. IRS. Huh? IRS. IRS. Yes, unfortunately, they can use the power of the sword. Do what? All the branches. Yeah. What are they? <laughs> Do what? Legislative. What else? Executive. Executive. And judicial. That's right. That's right. Okay. So Congress, uh, the, su- the Supreme Court, the military, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, all of those guys. Yeah. Those are all examples of uh, the civil government in, in various, wa- various forms. Right. And so, if we do what is right and what is good, we should expect their approval, right? In a just civil government, that's true. Even an unjust one. You know, the state isn't, uh, you know, knocking down our doors to mess with us all the time. Why is that? Because we're not out robbing people. We're not out, uh, you know, stealing cars or killing people. You know, we're minding our own business, doing good things. And so, the state leaves us alone. So... 
that's about as best we can do as far as getting their approval. We'll leave you alone. We approve. Yeah, so that's the best we can do at the moment. Okay, so yeah, so he says, uh, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Okay, civil rulers, good civil rulers, any, any rulers are a threat to Satan. Think about that for a second. Rulers, good rulers, just right rulers are a threat to the devil and his kingdom. And the, see, the very existence of rulers, what does that imply? If there's rulers and then there's subordinates. Exactly. There's a hierarchy of power. There's a hierarchy of responsibility. And that there is a structure that has been created by God. And so then Paul, in Romans 13, turned to the institution of the civil government. And now he's talking about a specific power out of those multitudes of powers. He's narrowing his focus to the institution that bears the sword. And Paul wrote of the civil magistrate in Romans 13, verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read it. It says, For he is God's servant for your good. Who is the he? The state. The state. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. There it is. So think about this. Paul actually spoke of the civil magistrate. How does he describe him? In verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. What's another way to say servant uh, in Christianese, in biblical terms? Well, that is another way. Yeah, that's a good one. But it's not exactly the one I'm looking for. Uh, when you serve someone... What are what are you what are you acting as? There it is, a minister. I think other translations literally say minister. So Paul is speaking of the civil magistrate as a minister of God. We only think of ministers as like pastors and elders and teachers and things like that, right? But no, there are ministers of God not only in the church sphere but in all the other spheres too. So Paul is speaking of the civil magistrate as a minister of God. That means they have a holy calling. Uh, it's really important. Um, and Paul argues that the minister of justice... What, well, let me go back a little bit. When someone is a minister of the church, what are they the minister of? The state's the minister of justice. What is the church, church mem, uh, ministers? What are they ministers of? Well, they are. They all are ministers of God. But of what particular thing are they serving? Huh? That's part of it. The the Evangelion, uh, the, the the gospel. Right, right. The gospel. Yeah. So they're ministers of the gospel. But these guys are ministers of justice. They have a completely different ministry. That means they they minister not with the keys, not with the Lord's Supper and baptism and those sorts of things, not with the sword of the Spirit or the sword, which is the Word of God, but what do they minister with, the civil rulers? A literal sword <laughs> or gun or whatever. Yeah, 
So they, they minister with a physical sword. But that sword's also ordained by God just as much as the minister who uh, ministers with uh, God's word, the other sword. So, so what does all this mean? Why am I talking about all this? Well, in a very real sense, the minister of justice is just as important to the life of a godly society as the minister of the gospel is. Y'all get that? The minister of justice, the civil magistrate, is just as important to Christendom as a minister of the gospel is. Now, he has a different function, but he's, and he's entitled to tribute. What, it, what tribute is um, or ministers of the gospel entitled to? What is that tribute called? Um, tithes. Tithes. And what is the tribute that the civil magistrates are entitled to? Taxes. Taxes, yes. Dun, dun, dun. Taxes always gets a bad rap. But taxes really are they're a good thing. Now, exorbitant taxes are not a good thing, which is what our government is doing to us. But taxes in and of themselves, are it's not a bad thing. And so if civil magistrates are owed taxes, just like the minister of the gospel is owed tithes, then there's no way that we can consider every kind of taxation as theft. Y'all have heard that saying before, taxation is theft? That's false. No. Uh, Exorbitant taxation is theft, but not every kind of taxation is bad. It's not all theft. Now, could could a, a Christian society run without tithes? No. no. Could a Christian society run without taxes? No. That, was a, that was a more hesitant no. That, that's right. No, it can't. It can't. Um, you know, and there's no doubt that our current state that thinks they're God and they're the Messiah, uh, there's no doubt that uh, they can demand taxation at levels that can certainly be considered to be theft, Right. Uh, a monopoly of the sword empowers the state to become tyrannical, um, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to become a monopoly of all the spheres. But taxation shouldn't be viewed as theft, uh, not any more than tithe, tithing to God is theft. So with their taxes to the state, men are paying for very important services leading to – I mean, what sort of good things is the civil government supposed to do? For society. Put the bad guys away. Protect people. That means there will be a suppression of violence. There will be a suppression of theft. There will be a suppression of fraud. Basically, the suppression of Satan's evil works in the world. That's what the civil government is supposed to do. And that's what your taxes should be paying for. And that's a good thing. Um, Now, in the days before the people of Israel demanded a human king in 1 Samuel... Who was their sovereign ruler? Moses. Well, Moses, Moses died long before they demanded a king. God was, right. God was their sovereign ruler. Therefore, when they came to the prophet Samuel, uh, he warned them against the consequences of raising up a human to rule them in the kingdom. Now, is there anything necessarily wrong with having a human king rule over you? No, not really. But what was Israel's problem? Why, did, why was God displeased with their desire to have a human king? They were replacing God. Mm-hmm. They, they were replacing God instead of what? How, how should a human king act in, in ruling over a people in relation to God? Encouraging God. What? Encouraging people to worship God, not him. Right, right, right. Exactly. Anybody else have a different take on that? 
Exactly. They they didn't they didn't want they really didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted to be like the other nations who had the pagan gods rule over them. Huh? Sounds like a child. How do you mean? No, I'm I'm interested to know. What's that? It, it's like a kid looking at someone else's something. I don't know. Like envying what another kid wants, like a yeah. toy that another kid has. Yeah, yeah that's an accurate assessment. And, yeah. And a lot of the other uh, nations had worshipped their king, right? Right. Their king. Their king was their mediator between yeah. God and man. Right. And God obviously, he didn't, he, 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 they knew they were eventually going to have to have a human king, but he wasn't going to be a mediator because who was supposed to come later on that was going to be the king and mediator? Jesus, exactly. Yes. It's like going to the store and seeing like, do you have, you really want like the best, want number one best thing, but when you go to the store, it's only the second best thing, but you still get it just because you're patient. Yes, yes, yes. So, sure. So, yeah, they, um, <clears throat> They wanted this human king, and God wasn't pleased with them. And then in 1 Samuel 8, we have a really good example of what a tyrannical state would look like. So Samuel said, okay, you want a human king? You want to be like all the other nations around you and basically you know, uh, rebel and put a revolution against the God who brought you out of Egypt? He said, all right, well, here's what you'll get with this king. The king is going to, they're going to take your sons and he's going to assign them to the army to do the king's bidding with other countries. Um, He's going to draft your daughters and make them uh, cooks in his kitchen for his soldiers. He's going to take the finest crops of your field and use them for his purposes. He's going to take 10% of your agricultural produce. They thought 10% of produce was like hardcore tyranny. 10% of my first fruits. Uh, They thought that was crazy. What are we being taxed these days? Like 40 to 50% at least. Yeah, so they thought that was bad. So what does that say about our civil government? It's pretty bad, yeah. And he also said that they would draft the, the services of your servants. They're going to take your slaves. He's going to take your slaves and use them for his purposes, as well as your horses and your beasts of burden, your animals. And uh, he says in verse 17 and 18 of First Samuel 8, he says, he will take... The tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye have, shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not be, oh, I misspelled this word. I think it says near you in that day. I don't know, I misspelled it. Anyway, yeah, so uh, basically, uh, he will not listen to you. The king will not listen to you. and uh, Or actually, I'm getting my words mixed up. Uh, it says, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. So basically God is telling Samuel, look, you're going to tell them all this stuff, but they're not going to listen to you. Because honestly, they haven't rejected you. They've really rejected me. That I, and they don't want me to reign over them. So Israel had sinned, right? And we already figured out uh, the nature of their sin. They sinned by substituting an earthly king in the place of a heavenly king. They wanted to be like all the other nations around them. Uh, in other words, they wanted to elevate a man to the position of honor and power that God has exercised over them. They wanted to be known among the nations as just another kingdom of man instead of kingdom of God. Uh, they wanted to remove God's name as their ruler and defender. 
and they, they wanted to substitute the name of mighty men instead of God. And they wanted to live in the kingdom of man and not in the kingdom of God. And God gave them what they wanted. So we know the mark of tyranny, we, the, the mark of man's kingdom. So it's a kingdom, man's kingdom, humanistic kingdoms, is a kingdom which refuses to recognize the sovereignty of God. And this is shown to everyone by a level of taxation that equals or exceeds the tithe, which is 10% of one's production. Think about that. Taxation. They thought that taxation was over the top if it was 10%. So there's no way we should be paying, God, paying to the state more than what we uh, pay to God. So, nine per, so 5%, okay, sure. 6%, eh, okay. 7 8 Oh, you're getting really close. 9%, uh, now you're getting really, really close to thinking you're God. 10% tax. Oh, you think you're God. And where are we at? 45%. <laughs> so does our civil government think, think it's God? Yes, absolutely. I think it's, huh? I think it's Right. They think they can, they can uh, that they're over, they're over the Christian God. At this point, they're just the devil. Right. Well, they are. They are, work, they are working for, for the devil. Does, does the devil want to usurp the authority of God the Father and rule over the universe for his own ends? Yep, he does. Uh, but he's not omnipotent, so he has to do this through external top-down means, which is trying to get civil governments and states to oppress people and get people to work for his kingdom. And we've talked about that in the past. What's for me? So the 20th century, going into the 21st century is the age of the universal humanist kingdoms. Because I can think, there are probably no other century other than the, besides the 19th and the 20th centuries that have had so many messianic states. Y'all are reading about all these things right now in, uh, in humanities, right? We have Karl Marx, you'll have, you have Hitler, you have Rousseau, you have all of these guys that, are trying to um, totally rebel against God and his natural order of things. And what has happened? Since World War I, since the beginning of the 20th century, Messianic states have imposed levels of taxation far beyond Israel's prophesied level of judgment. God prophesied judgment to them, saying that they're going to take 10% of your money. That was judgment. We're doing 50% and 45%. It's crazy. In fact, there isn't a Western nation, let alone one in the communist camp, that wouldn't have to roll back taxes by at least 50% in order to reach the soft, mild taxation of Egypt under Pharaoh in Joseph's day. And what do you think, what do you think Egypt taxed Israel? Huh? 20%. Exactly. 20%. So you'd have to cut... You, there's no one that you could do less than cut in half the tax to get that. Right. So that just so, shows you where we are. The whole world is more than 40. Yes. Wow. Yes. So I know things don't, things don't seem to look very good right now, but it is. I promise. Things will get better. So um, <clears throat> let's see. All right. Enough of that. Let's talk about sovereignty for a moment in the state. Sovereignty in the civil government. Should Christians regard the civil government as the highest law of the land? No. The apostles didn't think so either. 
So an incident happened in the early church in Acts 5 that presents us with the basis of a legitimate resistance to unnecessary state powers. So when Paul says to submit to the government, submit to ruling authorities, does he mean that you should submit to authorities unconditionally without any thought? Like you just obey, Put put on the mask, take the jab, do it now. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, that's not what that means. And we have, we have a basis in Scripture to go off of, and it's in Acts 5. And the high, remember the high priests and the chief priests, they were complaining to the Roman authorities about uh, Peter's preaching and the apostles after the high priest had told them to stop. Remember that? Mm-hmm. The high priest said, you need to stop preaching this Jesus. And Peter refused. So uh, the high priests, the Jewish high priests took them to, Rome, to Roman authorities and said, they're trying to start an insurrection. They're trying to say that Caesar isn't God and that uh, this Jesus is God. And so here's, what, uh, here's the story. Acts 5, verses 26 through 29. It says, Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, that's the apostles, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So not only are you preaching the name of Jesus, you're publicly blaming us for his death. Okay, and so here's verse 29. This is what Peter responded. And here's our basis for how we should uh, obey or disobey the civil government. Peter answered, and the, uh, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's the key statement there. We must obey God rather than men. Now, does this statement contradict the statement I said earlier that Paul made in, uh, in Romans 12 and 13? No. no? Why do you think it doesn't contradict? What did Paul say in Romans 13? Uh, to obey the ministers of God. Yeah, and now Peter seems to be saying the opposite. Well, we must obey God rather than men. Because they're not ministers to God. There you go. Yeah. Well, the the uh, the objects are different, right? Uh, so here's here's Romans twelve eighteen. It says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." So as much as possible. So that must indicate that there's some limit to where that's not possible, right? Be willing to submit to others if at all possible. And here's Romans 13, 7. It says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So Paul's injunction here concerns powers and power, right? So the governing authorities, and then he zooms into uh, the one authority, the civil magistrate. So, uh, So if this interpretation of Paul's message is incorrect... If Paul was not speaking of the many, of all institutional authorities, as well as the one, which is the civil magistrate, then it appears to be impossible to reconcile Paul's teaching with the response of the apostles. Paul appears to say, submit, and the apostles seem to say, don't submit. And so, and if he was saying that we need to have total obedience to the civil magistrate, to the neglect of the other legitimate authorities, then he would be establishing a theology for the messianic state, which would save men not through gospel, but through what? Through law, through legislation. So 
Paul was the great theologian, not of law, but of what? Salvation by grace, grace through faith, not by works of the law. So Paul's general principle here is that the autonomous human conscience, that means the independent and undisciplined human conscience, is not sovereign above all other authorities. That's what he's really saying in Romans 13. Your own heart and your own will is not an authority over other institutions. Okay, He's basically destroying the idea of autonomy here. Okay, Romans 13, 5, it says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. But doesn't this imply that the human conscience can't legitimately rebel against the dictates of one of these established authorities if the conscience is supported by one or more of the other lawfully established authorities? In order to make the dictates of any single human institution the final voice of authority in time and on earth is to make one aspect of the creation God. It's to substitute human authority for God's authority. And the Protestant Reformation was a, re- was a revolution against this very doctrine. Okay? So it was a rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine that the institution of church can speak infallibly and with God's authority alone not taking into account the opinions of the other authority or group of authorities. See, the Roman Catholic Church had claimed itself to be the monopoly of authority, not because it said explicitly that there are no other lawful authorities, but because it said that there was no earthly court of appeal beyond the Pope when he spoke on moral or religious issues. Now, so the Roman Catholic Church is based, they were basically saying that, yes, there are other authorities on earth, but we're the highest one, mm-hmm. right? And, right, so, so, what, so who was the highest authority back before the Reformation? It was the church. Now we, now we have a, somebody that's went into their place. Now who thinks they're the highest authority? But they're not, the state. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so... Now, these days, nobody believes that the institutional church is the final authority. They don't even believe the institutional church has any authority, right? Mm-hmm. Including most Roman Catholics. They don't think the Roman Catholic Church has any authority. That idea is gone. I mean, there's still a pope today. Uh, whatever the pope said back then, back in the day, was as good as done. Like, he can make a law or edict, and it would be done instantly. No matter what country... No matter what country it was, no matter where people lived, like if the Pope said something and declared something as from God, ex cathedra, uh, it was law. That's basically the king. Huh? That's basically a king. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's, he's the ultimate, uh, and that's how they viewed him. He was the, the mediator between God and man. But that's unbiblical because there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Yeah, so... The Pope was very authoritative back then. What he said went. Well, we have a Pope today, uh, but he is, I mean, have, you, have y'all seen the Pope, like, on TV or whatever? I think I saw the last one. Huh? I think I saw pictures of, like, the last one. Well, you know, if you, were, if you lived, you know, 600 years ago, you would definitely know who the Pope was. You would have his image in your mind. You would definitely know that, oh, that's the Pope. All hail the Pope, right? Oh, um, yeah, exactly. See, even though even the term Pope Fauci, intent, you know, has an intention of saying that he is the highest authority over everything, right? But the Pope today, he doesn't have that. Nobody thinks he has any authority. 
So he doesn't, he hesitates to enforce his own pronouncements, let alone the pronouncements of all his predecessors. So what modern men do believe in, however, is the infallibility of the state or the central government or the latest reigning bearer of power. Okay, and even when they have become totally cynical, believing in the sovereignty of no social institution, they retain faith in the sovereignty of some other aspect of man. All right? What are some? What are some examples of this uh, throughout? Huh? Self-government. No, like like people in general. Like they don't believe the church is any real authority. Uh, there have even been some instances over the past 200 years where they don't even believe really the state has anything of, of authority to say. But they will put their faith in the sovereignty of some other aspect of, of man. Like, like um, huh? The family? Uh, n- no, I'm thinking more of like the pagan, pagan groups of people. Like oh. uh, they put their faith in Pope Fauci and science. That's yeah. sovereign. You, you, get, you get my drift now? Or back, uh, you know. Uh, well, that's just a different church. For sure, it is a different church. There's always there are always religious aspects of these things. Every every um, everybody's religious in nature, and so yeah. Whether it was the atom bomb a hundred years ago, the technology of man in science, the evolution directing power of modern biological science, uh, you know, shown in the face of Pope Fauci, uh, the genius of the lonely artist. The power of reason. Some people base that, well, if it sounds reasonable and rational to me, then I'll believe it and follow it. I don't care what some authority says. I have to believe it within myself and in my heart to know that this is what I should do. So some people believe those things are sovereign. Some people believe their feelings are sovereign. In other words, all these are ways to say that men seek salvation by their own hands and not by God's. Okay? Now... Because uh, the political order has the ability to concentrate the greatest earthly power in any single aspect of human life, the messianic state has attained a God-imitating power these days. And since there is no earthly court of appeal beyond the state, there's no authority that we can go to to put the state in check, according to modern humanism, there can be no God to bring judgment on the state. Now, a few rebels think that the inevitable forces of history can judge bourgeois states, like Karl Marx. He believes that the proletariat can, all the people can unite together to turn over the elites in the bourgeois states. That's communist doctrine, right? Or that some other factor factor in the creation can bring impersonal judgment on the state. Notice that I said impersonal judgment, right? They don't believe that a personal creator God can bring judgment on the various institutional kingdoms of man. And so the state, however, is man's most powerful single entity right now. And it exacts tribute taxes from its servants in the form of taxation, regulations, uh, and an endless stream of new legislation. I mean, if you would even... You would, you would be amazed to think and to see the amount of codes and hoops you have to jump through just to build a building in the backyard. Like code after code, red tape after red tape, endless regulations. That is the way the state so shows that it's sovereign over the people, even over the church. We're a church, aren't we? Yeah, so we can see that. They, they do not care what you are. They believe they are God.
and they are showing it by the amount of uh, taxation and offerings you have to bring to them to appease them so they will let you build your building. And so, <clears throat> so we've seen this explode, this idea of the Messianic state in the last decades of the 20th century into the 21st century, right? But it, has, it hasn't been replaced by any other universally agreed upon theology. It remains supreme by default. Okay, so the state thinks it's God, just like the church thought it was God, but it's not. So let's talk about welfare in the state. We talked about welfare in the church a few weeks back. Um, let's talk about welfare in the state. So the modern state has advanced its claims of total sovereignty by two strategies. There's two ways the state can advance its claims of sovereignty. Two W's, war and welfare. War and welfare. So the most crucial institutional aspect of the welfare strategy has been, we talked about it earlier, the government education system. So by requiring people to educate their children and by establishing these state-financed schools, that means tax-financed schools, the state has essentially created a priesthood. The, the modern public school system is the church of the state. It's the church services of the state. And the certified public school teacher, they are acting as a priest in the priesthood of this state-certified, bona fide system. And so the state has created an established church. So, but it's, and that's the way they, that's one big way that they establish their sovereignty is by t taking over the minds and the education of the people. Um, that's one way that the state believes they are contributing to the welfare of society. Um, so that's one way they do welfare. Well, what about welfare in the Bible? Does the state ever have anything to do with welfare in the Bible? The family is supposed to Right. Well, the welfare in the Bible is almost exclusively private in nature. It's not public. Like public school, private school. It's always done by private citizens, welfare. And the few cases that indicate that the presence of civil government when it comes to welfare, those are ambiguous texts with respect to penalties, the agency of enforcement, and whether the replacement of the Old Testament kingdom in Israel by the New Testament's more decentralized international kingdom uh, has transferred enforcement and responsibility to another agent. So perhaps the most effective example of the function of the civil government in the Old Testament, where the specifics of political responsibility are spelled out in greater detail, is in the case of leprosy. Isn't that interesting? Really, the only place in Scripture where it give, where God gives any authority to uh, to the state for the welfare of the people is in the case of leprosy. So, the civil government had the responsibility of preventing the spread of disease, and it didn't do this. Get this: it didn't do this by some massive healthcare program. Okay. Um, it didn't do this by throwing a bunch of money at some programs to try to get people in their doctor's offices getting the jab. Or it didn't launch some big massive health program to you know, buy truckloads and truckloads of masks to be able to distribute out to the people like our state has done over the past few years. On the contrary, the Old Testament spelled out a system which made a public health program 
finance by, back by taxation impossible to do. So what the Old Testament civil, civil authorities were required to do was to proclaim a quarantine. That's why whenever uh, a couple of years ago, you remember whenever uh, the state of Louisiana said uh, quarantine, you know, six feet apart, stay in your homes, don't meet, don't gather. You ever wondered, like, why did, why did we as a church obey that edict? Because that's their job. That is their job. Now, I, re- I remember our discussions talking about this as pastors. I remember this vividly. I said, uh, we, we all said, yes, according to the Old Testament in the Bible, they do have the authority to proclaim a quarantine, but we're all skeptical. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they're probably not doing this on the up and up, but... Once again, that's where Romans 13 came into place. We should still, inside of their, the lawful authority that they give, we must submit and we must obey. And that's why we did. And, yeah, so as long as the civil government stays like this, uh, corrupt, we probably won't ever do that again. But anyway, you don't know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. So going back to what they were supposed to do, the government can proclaim a quarantine And so notice this, that the civil government's function was entirely negative. It wasn't providing welfare to the masses as far as stuff in a positive direction. It was just, it was functioning in in an entirely negative sense. It wasn't positive law enforcement. Do you understand what that, what I mean by positive law enforcement and negative law enforcement? Do y'all? They only punish, not uh, like, uh, rewarded. In a sense, yes. So what? So let me give you a quick example of the difference between positive and negative law enforcement. Okay. One law in the Old Testament was a real famous one to put a railing around your roof, right? Mm-hmm. So why why do you why did the government why did God say hey y'all need to put a railing around each person needs to put railings around their roofs? Why did why is that? So that people don't fall off. So people don't fall off. So that sounds a lot like the coding department, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your building needs to be up to a certain code. Well, that is positive law enforcement, right? And so what would happen if you didn't put the uh, railing around the roof and someone fell? You'd be liable. You would be liable, exactly. You would probably, you know, something you could either get the death penalty, some kind of capital punishment, or you'd have to pay in some sort of way. You would be liable. But here's the difference between that. That sounds a lot like our government, right? What if, what if, uh, uh, you know, uh, what if you didn't put the railing around your roof in our society? Let's say our society had that rule. Put a railing around your roof. And, and the code, the, the sheriff went by your house and saw that there was no railing on your roof. What would they do? What would they probably do? Give you a ticket, right? Uh, some kind of citation. Someone could fall. But that's not how it was in biblical times. That's not how it was in the Old Testament. God, well, they did hang on on their roofs, uh, but God gave them, hey, you better put a railing around your roof. That wasn't a law. That was a very strong suggestion. So if, uh, so if there was a, so no one, no code enforcement in, in Israel would be running around seeing if people were out of code and not putting their rails around their, their uh, rooftops. But they said, look, here's what you should do. But if you don't do it and someone falls off, you'll be liable because you didn't do it. Right? That's straight negative law enforcement. Instead of, 
Like, no one would be giving tickets to anybody in Old Testament Israel for not putting railings around their roof. But they will be liable if someone falls off. Do, you, do y'all see the difference there? It's very subtle. Uh, it's very subtle. That's negative law enforcement versus positive. Okay, so it's the same thing with the leprosy thing found in Leviticus 13 and 14. So let's say a man was found with a leprous disease, some kind of skin disease. Well, obviously, the skin disease can spread and wipe out the whole nation. We don't want that. So the sick man was to be brought before the priests and examined thoroughly. And these signs are detailed in Leviticus 13, verses 3 through 44. I'm not going to read those because they are very, very detailed. And I don't want to bore you with all that. So, but here is what Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 says right after all that. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Okay, so the man or the woman was cast outside the city's gates if he had leprosy. Uh, He couldn't come into the congregation. He couldn't go into his home. He couldn't go into his place of employment. He became a total outcast in Israel. Even the clothes that were worn by leopards or showing the signs of leprosy had to be examined. Uh, except for those actually being worn by the leopard, they had to be burned. All of his clothes had to be burned. He couldn't sell them to raise money for his own support. Remember, he didn't have a job anymore. Uh, even the house that had signs of leprosy in it could be condemned and burned to the ground. That was the government's job, to see if the house had leprosy, and then if it did, you burn it down. And so the priests were required to make this inspection of the house that was suspected of leprosy. And the owner of the house was required to report any signs of leprosy to the priests. And any house that gave signs of leprosy after the priest's examination was torn down, and its remains were carried outside of the city and tossed into a place reserved for unclean or polluted or defiled things. In all of this, the, the, leopard, the lepers lost everything. They lost everything. They didn't have a house anymore. They, didn't have, they only had the clothes on their backs. They had to go out of town and live there for the rest of their days. Uh, what was the responsibility of the priests of the civil government in compensating the victims? Nothing. 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 That, may, that sounds kind of cruel, cruel, right? But is it the government's job to provide comp- victim compensation? No. It wasn't their job. It wasn't their job. There wasn't any word about any form of economic compensation for them. The authorities, they came into the man's house. They inspected it. If it had leprosy in it, they tore it down. The family was left homeless. How can you tell if a house has leprosy? Well, I know. There, there's, uh, there are ways. It's, it's in Leviticus, uh, what I said earlier. It's in Leviticus 13. So if you want to f- learn more about that, you can read that passage. So if there was someone you really didn't like, Oh, you'd be declared unclean. And probably the person throwing the box full of leprosy or whatever it is will probably be uh, in trouble as well. Okay, so my point is that the civil government wasn't required by biblical law to pay the victim anything. In our, in our case, would that, would that be the case? I mean, if somebody was... Let's say somebody was down in their luck. They were, there was government housing, and it was condemned and torn down. You know, couldn't you go apply for government housing and go live in a Section 8 home, and you have all that provided for you by the government? Yeah. 
Is the government acting lawfully, as according to the Bible, by providing those things? No. no, it's not. That's not the government's job. Whose job is it to provide for welfare of people? Family? The family or individuals, personal, or the church. Yeah, it's not the, not the government's job. Um, you know, consi- think about that leprous man. He lost his occupation. He's separated from, let's say he's the only one that, that got leprosy and the rest of the family's fine. And leprosy was an incurable disease. Like, you couldn't be cured of it. Like, it, you, once you had it, you had it for the rest of your life. Um, he had to spend his days wandering outside the city. Anytime he got near a person, he had to shout, unclean, unclean. Like, how shameful is that on yourself? Why do you have to shout unclean? So people would stay away from you. Yeah, you don't want people to be near you because you could give them leprosy. So he became a social outcast. Did you get in trouble by giving people leprosy? Yes. Yeah, you would, you would be killed most likely. Um, all that he could do was beg in an area outside the city. Maybe he could start a small garden for his food outside the camp. Um, he couldn't produce anything for sale in the market. Why not? Because his hands were unclean. He would just spread leprosy to everything on, on, uh, on everything he made. And so this was quarantine on a total basis. That's a pretty big definition of quarantine. And so all the lepers had to be separated from all the healthy people. Was the, was the civil government required to put them on Social Security or on welfare? Nope. The role of civil government was entirely negative. It was negative. So given the defenseless position of the leper, we would think that if the Bible required public assistance, it would be in this case, right? I mean, goodness, if the government could provide assistance, it would be here. I mean, the victim faced this disaster that was of no fault of their own. It wasn't their fault they got leprosy. Uh, he wasn't lazy. He may have even been a, a wealthy property owner. Uh, think He could have even been a king. Think of uh, King Uzziah, who he went and tried to uh, become a priest, become a head of the the um, the church sphere instead of the civil sphere, and he burnt incense upon the altar of God. And what did God judge him by giving him? Leprosy. Leprosy. And what happened with him? He was quarantined. He was cut off from the temple, and he was forced to live outside the city in a specially built house. The king wasn't even exempt from these reg- regulations. So in other words, the most influential people in society, the, the good citizens, the decent citizens, could be cut down by leprosy. But the civil government didn't do anything for them. It wasn't their job. Now think about this. If the civil government wasn't required to give assistance to these victims of all of these uncontrollable forces, how in the world can a, uh, can a coherent case be made for Christian socialism? That's something that's been talked about over the past 50 years. It's Christian socialism. Y'all know what socialism is, right? Yeah. Give, me, give me a quick definition of socialism. Someone. The government provides for all your needs. Well, everyone gives communally to the government, and then the government, the state, decides who should get what. It's like equally distributed, except the people who are more equal than others. You're right, exactly. Exactly. And so a lot of Christians over the past 50 or so years have advocated for a Christian version of this. But there's no way that could happen. There's no biblical precedence for it. Because welfare was never meant to be handled by the civil government. Welfare was always meant to be a product of either personal, familial, or ecclesiastical decisions. The state has to be kept out of the welfare area because it has a monopoly on tax collection. And it's going to steal to provide programs to down-and-out families. 
That's the only way it can provide funds to do that is by transferring wealth by force from other people to, uh, from some people to give to other people. And that's not right. Regardless of how much that person needs it, it's still not right to steal from this guy to give it to this guy. Thou shall not steal. So it's what that is essentially doing, this whole socialistic government thing, is it's transferring sovereignty from private citizens and voluntary agencies to itself, the civil government, making itself the sovereign one. So it, cons- it consolidates power in what they say is a name of necessity, and it's always seeking out new beneficiaries of other people's productive efforts in order to consolidate raw political power over people. So it uses welfare programs for power. And the welfare function, when it's centralized and made compulsory, you know what that means? You have to. You have to. You're required to. That leads to the creation of a messianic state. And this state becomes arrogant and full of pride. And collective man basically thinks he's God at this point. So back, way back when, in 1913, whenever the, all of these ideas came out in the U.S. for welfare systems and, uh, you know, uh, Social Security and all of these things. You know, our, uh, our ancestors, those that lived over 100 years ago, should have immediately said, no, absolutely not. We can see what's coming down the road because this always leads to a messianic state. And so, <clears throat> so we're kind of living out the, the consequences of, of those decisions. Okay. Um, I think that's good enough for now. Any questions? Any thoughts about this? I don't think this is anything you guys don't know. Who's ultimately in authority over the world? Jesus. Jesus, right. He's the king. He's the monarch. And God, Jesus delegates his authority through three spheres. The family, the church, and the state. And none of these authorities should proclaim themselves Lord over the others. The church, it's actually the church's job to call the state into question right now. Now, obviously, the church can't do anything. The church can't, like, you know, uh, go into the state capitol and demand, demand, you know, uh, John Bell Edwards' head on a platter or anything like that. They can't do that sort of thing. But we can pray, pray to the Lord. We can pray imprecatory psalms against those who want to destroy the church and God's people, those that are in the civil government that want to do that because they're there. Um, we can continue to worship God and do what we're doing, and we can continue to build the institutions of the church and the families up strong so that one day we can call the state back into to check, and they would be able to do what they're supposed to do and not think they're the saviors of the world. 